Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. An important note, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own and not necessarily those of Refinitiv or its parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group, also known as LSEG. Today, we're answering your and our customers' questions, and joining us today is our friend Carl Larry to moderate. Carl, over to you. Corey, thank you so much. Uh, also, Jim, thank you for having me on. I'm very, very honored and happy to be on, and a uh, really exciting day, really exciting time to be talking about what we you know, these questions that customers are asking. And, uh, you know, I never get a, I don't get a lot of chances to actually uh, get on a podcast, so I wore my best suit and tie today, and I'm really hoping I can impress everybody here with just uh, being a, a good moderator. So I think it's interesting. I saw some of these questions these, the, your clients were asking, Jim and Corey, and I thought, wow, the timing, uh, and, you know, it's, you know, it's really important because we just saw that report come out today by the UN about, you know, climate change and how things are going. So, you know, as we delve into these, it, it's always, it's, it, it's always important. It's always relevant, but I guess, you know, today it's, we get a chance to really dig into it. And I guess we start here with, with what is hydrogen's role in a clean fuel world? And it's one of those things where people really aren't even, you know, talking too much about hydrogen right now. They're only thinking green energy. And we all know in, in the energy sector that we've all been in that hydrogen always been something that's very important back, you know, back in the Bush days, uh, Bush, you know, Bush number, uh, number one, number two. So, I guess let's start with that. What is hydrogen's role in a clean fuel world? Uh, Corey, you can start off with this one. Yeah, thanks, Carl. Um, let me start off by saying that I'm I'm agnostic as to the energy mix. I think most everyone wants to see energy clean, but also wants it for it to, for it to be as cheap as possible. Now, I'm talking here, of course, about con- consumers. Um, so before I launch off into something that sounds anti-renewables, I'm not trying to be that way. I'm only highlighting what I perceive of as the challenges. And with that said, hydrogen's place in a clean fuel world. So I come from a transportation fuels and refining background. So when I think about hydrogen, I think about its use in refineries. But as hydrogen has become so prominent in discussions about the energy transition, I think we need to think about what is realistic. Hydrogen is difficult to store and difficult and costly to transport. If we think about the established and intricate system we have to move, for example, gasoline around rather cheaply, like other alternatives, hydrogen can't realistically compete without non-economic incentives. And think about the energy content. Now, we generally see a 300-mile range goal as the mark to hit with alternative vehicles, and perhaps we see that more easily with hydrogen vehicles. Hydrogen less affected by climate differences than battery vehicles, and perhaps both have a more prominent place in what I like to say is grocery getters, so short-term, short, short-trip vehicles, where typical gasoline-powered vehicles retain for longer-term journeys. The issue is, if I have an EV and use it for trips around town, I can then come home and plug it in, often at night when I don't need it. But if I have a hydrogen vehicle, then I'm stuck going to a hydrogen filling station, which will be less available for the foreseeable future, more often than I would with a gasoline-powered vehicle. And this isn't necessarily taking into account the energy necessary to compress hydrogen, energy losses when refueling, etc. 
It also takes four times the energy to transport hydrogen via pipeline than, say, natural gas. And transporting hydrogen via truck to filling station doesn't doesn't look the same as transporting traditional liquid fuels. Now, the tank needed to transport hydrogen, the same, you know, 40 ton weight as a gasoline truck, for example, would need to be able to handle storing the gas, and would mean that a typical filling station would require multiple deliveries per day to keep up demand. There's an obvious cost to all this, and likely to go against the purported GHG emissions that hydrogen power is aimed to reduce. Insecurity. I mean, an accident or malfeasance taken against a typical fuel truck can create significant damage. But a rupture of a hydrogen truck would mean an instant fireball enough to cover a city block. So given the challenges, I don't really think hydrogen as a transportation fuel will ever take off. Now, I do think hydrogen has its place on the power gen side. I mean, existing gas turbines can be converted to runoff hydrogen. And I know the, the goal there would be to get hydrogen from electrolysis or some process that doesn't involve fossil fuels. But one can build a steam methane reformer relatively cheaply, $500 million, uh, to extract hydrogen from natural gas, and natural gas still being the bridge fuel. Given some more recent movements by government entities outside of the U.S., I think hydrogen will, will probably, uh, to some degree anyway, permeate into the power gen sector. So I'm not as bullish as some on the use of hydrogen as a fuel. Obviously, since it is no carbon, combustion results in zero CO2 emissions. Uses in hydrogen fuel cells do look encouraging, but they've looked encouraging for the last two decades. No one has really been able to commercialize this potential in a meaningful way. I find myself agreeing with Elon Musk on this point that hydrogen fuel cells will not find their way into transportation. However, Hydrogen is plentiful, it can be produced anywhere, and if mass-produced, it will be relatively cheap. In these three elements, it'll find its market share. I'll be back to that. What hydrogen will not replace in a meaningful way is methane, natural gas, in areas where methane can be produced and transported. Hydrogen doesn't exist in a pure form in nature, so just like everything else in our world, it needs to be mined and refined. According to Ulf Bosel and Baldar Eliasson, a couple of PhDs and generally recognized experts on the hydrogen economy, it takes double the amount of energy input as one will get from hydrogen output for use. So a hydrogen economy will only really establish itself where it makes sense economically and energetically. Hydrogen is one-eighth the density of methane, but when put under compression, the migration molecules escaping into the atmosphere, overwhelms the benefit of using compression very quickly. To liquefy hydrogen, it takes a lot of energy to get down to a minus 253 degrees centigrade. In a joules per weight analysis, hydrogen is 250%, that's 2.5 times, more energy dense than methane. That's good. However, from a volumetric standpoint, it takes 3.2 times as much hydrogen to get to the same amount of joules compared to methane. Even a former trader like me can manage that math and see the implications aren't good for hydrogen where methane can be used. One last point, storage. Storage of hydrogen through chemical adsorption with calcium hydride, sodium hydride, or lithium hydride, the three best metal lattices to store hydrogen. Methanol carries 150 to 200% more hydrogen 
than if hydrogen is stored via adsorption. With all that said, do we abandon hydrogen as a fuel source? Absolutely not. Hydrogen competes economically, if not energetically, with LNG and propane in areas where methane is not produced. Compare hydrogen to burning animal dung or even wood, and one wonders why it's not already in place. All they really need is electrification and an enterprising marketer to have this market explode bigger. Yeah, guys, that's a really, really good point there. And, you know, from my standpoint, you know, being outside of this all, I always say that the one thing that people always forget about any kind of alternative energy, no matter what it is going forward, is infrastructure. And you both hit that right, that nail on the head, which is a great segue to the next question. So is net zero by 2050 achievable? I mean, there's a lot there. So it's a, it's a big thing to think about, but really not that far. Uh, so what do you guys think? I'm going to go with no. Next question. I'm, I'm just kidding, obviously, but uh, but not about it being achievable. Um, so I don't have time for a full unboxing, but an example point. I think that S-curves are obviously more applicable in the world and places other than the life cycles of companies. Take, for example, the global population. Near zero, there were about 200 million people in the world. This slowly increased to about a billion in 1800. Then we ramped up the curve and now stand at about 8 billion. Annual global population growth is just over 1%, and what I mean by the S-curve is that we will perhaps reach at some point that we start to level off more in the way of growth and grow more slowly. But that point is the population is still growing. More people need more energy, and the growth is happening in less developed economies where energy sources generally tend to be cheaper, i.e. dirtier. That said, look at the U.S. Our recent memory is 2020, which aside from all else represents a recession. Year 2000, light vehicle sales reached 17.3 million, but fell around the time that the dot-com bubble burst. We never actually achieved that high of a level of light vehicle sales before the Great Recession, but did stay over 16 million per year annual average. Um, by 2015, we reached that 17 million figure again, stayed around until COVID. Even though the unemployment rate reached 1.148% you know, during 2020, we still managed to sell almost 14. 0.5 million light vehicles here in the United States. Okay, now there's some offsetting factors going forward. Hybrid work models limiting commutes, but own vehicle use going up because of concerns over catching illness and professionals moving ever farther away from city centers. Demographic thoughts towards vehicle ownership and driving in general, more efficient vehicles permeating the fleet, although we may see light vehicle sales remain lower, which means that it will take longer for the fleet to turn over. And, of course, electric vehicles. I think it was much higher in 2020. But, again, let's just agree that 2020 should probably not be the year we use to set any type of baseline. So, in 2019, plug-in vehicle sales represented 2% of light vehicle sales, which is actually down slightly from the year prior. Now, perhaps we see the share of electric vehicle sales grow significantly. Maybe it ramps up over the next few years to 50%, I don't know. But still carbon neutral by 2050 essentially requires the complete phase-out of ICE vehicles. Even if the sales of ICE vehicles stop, how long will it take for the fleet to be completely retired? Okay, one final point. In the U.S., transportation accounts for nearly 30% of GHG emissions, while pyrogen is around 25%. That's perhaps flipped from other locales, and the answer to drastically limiting GHG emissions is nuclear. Uh-oh, 
lot of people are hesitant to adopt nuclear. Fair enough. So sufficient solar and wind, ignoring potential environmental issues there, displacing fossil fuel fossil fuel fired power gen. A good laboratory for this concept has been the Caribbean. Lots of sun, ample wind in spots. But land use becomes a real issue. Land is difficult to come by and is very expensive. So using up the land for, for example, to install solar panels in the quantity necessary to displace other fuel sources doesn't elicit much excitement. Remember, coal was impacted so heavily in the U.S., not because of policy, but because there was a cheap, viable alternative. And that displacement doesn't exist as much in other parts of the world. The recent spike in coal prices and plans by developed nations to build more coal plants shows us that. But calling current renewable schemes an alternative to more traditional sources of power gen is just not accurate. And thus, any meaningful substitution will not occur and will disallow a 2050 carbon neutral world. <laughs> so I'll go with no as well and no for a bunch of reasons. And I only really have time to highlight three. And the three that I'm going to talk about are investment, infrastructure, and arguably, most importantly, the will of the people. The CEO, CEO of Standard Chartered Bank is Bill Winters. He mentioned in an interview almost a year ago that he thought the world will have to invest somewhere around $125 trillion to reach net zero emissions. I've seen other sources put that number between 115 and 130 trillion. Let me put that in perspective. The 2019 world GDP, that's everyone producing everything, not just energy, was around 121 trillion. 125 trillion over the next 29 years is 4.3 trillion a year, every year for the next 29 years. The world hasn't invested 4.3 trillion into net zero in the last 15 years. No way does this happen over the next 29 years. Not even close. Also, there are some current multi-billion dollar investments that are currently under government subsidy life support. Infrastructure. Infrastructure takes time to build. We just heard about the finance aspect of that. The physical manufacturing and installation takes time. What of the infrastructure already in place? The trillions of dollars of infrastructure already in place needs to depreciate out and that investment recovered to a reasonable level before anyone will be willing to lump another massive chunk of money. That takes decades. Finally, the will of the people. I'm talking about all the people, not just the vocal few on each side. Green projects are running into the same not-in-my-backyard kind of arguments, just like oil-related projects. This is not going to go away, ever. Who's going to tell the residents of the East Bay that their $1,000 used car they rely on to get to work and get around is illegal, and they're going to have to spend $40,000 to buy a new electric car and upgrade the electricity in their house and install an energy charger? The will of the people is nowhere near that level, that they're willing to sacrifice their standard of living. Our research suggests that if the net zero movement can survive long enough, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2075, 2080 looks more achievable. As a reference, page 169 of EIA's May 2021 report suggests a date of 2090. That's, that, that, that is a long, long, long way. I think... Uh... 
I'm, I'm definitely uh, looking at my Star Trek days to, to look at that uh, that number. But Jim, you know, I really liked your your three highlights there: the investment, the infrastructure, and the will of the people. And I guess when we talk about all of this, what it comes down to really, it, it, it's about business. Uh, Paul Marchson once said, "Business is all about solving people's problems at a profit." And you know, that's what we always have to keep in mind. But it's really about the money and the ability to get things done if you're going to spend that money. Which, you know, leads us again to this next question. Are carbon restrictions and taxes more effective than carbon capture? Uh, so what do you guys think about this? Well, you know what Churchill said. For a nation to try to tax itself into prosperity is like a man standing in a bucket and trying to lift himself up in the handle. But I don't guess that applies here. And also, I don't think it's as simple as one versus the other type of thing. Um, for instance, carbon capture. Are you just talking about an industrialized approach or about planting trees for a carbon sink. If the latter, then I've heard recently that those purported efforts would mean taking over land a couple times larger than India just to meet the expressed goals by a handful of companies. If industrialized, it varies widely. So, for example, if you're conducting CCS in an ethanol plant where the CO2 coming off is concentrated and pure, then it's $25 to $35 a ton. The power gen could cost between $40 and $80 a ton. And the sci-fi pulling it out of the air approach, $135 to $345 a ton. <clears throat> but that's just for capture and not for the transportation storage, which can tack on an additional $2 to $14 a ton. So for the ethanol plants, I'd call it effective. But for other sources of GHGs, I don't know. Now on to restrictions and taxes. Maybe the old argument still applies that X is instituting a tax while Y is not, making X less competitive. But perhaps at more levels of playing field and someone spreads the obligation around multiple stakeholders. The issue is, the issue is you invest in CCS technology, and there's certainly a storage market and everything else. And you have to pay to, pay to maintain all the typical issues with an asset, whereas there are some investments made on the restriction tax side as well, but I see it as more fluid. Now, you're going to make investments in structural changes because of restrictions and taxes, but the risk is the shifting sands under your feet. So let's use uh, Columbia as an example. Columbia had a renewable investment scheme, I'm liberally considering this under the restrictions, taxes part of the question, where investors in renewable energy projects would get a 50% annual deduction of taxable income for the first five years after investment had been made. Equipment was excluded from, from value-added taxes, BAT, and if machinery was imported for the project, it would be exempt from customs duties. All well and good, except that within the last couple of months, the law was changed to allow blue hydrogen projects the same treatment. Again, blue hydrogen is that derived from natural gas. It's not as if you couldn't institute additional GHG abatement with producing blue hydrogen, but the change in the law somewhat flies in the face of what some of these laws and initiatives aim to accomplish. That said, I don't think it's a carbon restrictions, taxes versus carbon capture question. Uh, to me, it's not apples to apples. How I think of it is that carbon capture is one possible option to address restrictions, taxes based on how you are situated economically. The real question is how effective are carbon restrictions, taxes in a world where each sovereign operates independently. If all collectively stick to a scheme, then effectiveness increases. But currently, the scattershot approach represents more a transfer of wealth and sometimes a diminishment of energy security. Yeah, I agree with that. So restrictions and taxes are certainly easier for governments to implement, and they do raise funds for government efforts. 
but only really indirectly affect CO2 in the atmosphere. As the world gets more technically complex and nations and people improve their standard of living, they inevitably will demand more energy, which means the government coffers from carbon tax will get bigger, but so too could the greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. I'm a proponent of attacking the issue directly. Direct carbon capture and sequester directly lowers CO2 in the atmosphere. This, of course, comes at a cost. This is the cost that governments and corporations should be addressing. Yeah, that's a great point. Very good, Jim. And Corey, you know, the next question is really interesting. My background is mostly in financial. And, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting time, obviously, in the last year, year and a half now. But we're not, you know, bankruptcies, it seems, in the energy industry have been going down. And I think, personally, it's a lot of my opinion around, around tightening credit. You know, a lot more financial institutions don't want to lend out. Uh, and it, it's been a little bit harder. But that brings us to this question. Gentlemen, the energy bankruptcy scene seems to be dying down as the M&A market seems to be heating up. So what are your what do you think are the impacts of this phenomenon? You know, bankruptcy was actually my favorite topic in law school, but Jim has followed this topic more closely than I. Um, but for our subscribers out there, this month uh, I'll be assuming excuse me, assuming it's responsibility for Western Hemisphere crude oil analysis. And I'll be all over this. So, but, but my question is, are, are bankruptcies really dying down? And the reason I ask, there were eight new energy bankruptcies in the first quarter of 2021. Over the last couple of years, new bankruptcies have ticked up considerably in the second and third quarters, leaving the first and fourth quarters a bit less active. But assuming the bankruptcies are dying down, the assets aren't just going to go away. I think like what typically happens, uh, restructuring will lead to better uses of assets or the selling of assets into stronger hands. Uh, with recovery and stronger oil prices, perhaps we will see some sustaining success. Yeah, yeah. Bankers, bankruptcies are still happening, but they're coming from companies that were damaged beyond repair for one reason or another. Or the assets, as Corey mentioned, are, are being sucked up as fast as they can be listed. While these assets make their way through the legal process, they're idled. When they come back online, it'll be a noticeable boost in oil production. So M&A activity in the first half of 2021 was around 70 deals and 45 billion-ish in value. Um, arguable whether the second half of 2021 is quite that strong, but I wouldn't doubt a combined sales price of $80 billion for the year. And for what it's worth, 2020 saw $77 billion-ish in value transacted. So there are some interesting twists happening in the market right now. The, price writes, the press writes about E&P discipline. I don't doubt that there's more disciplined approach to drilling going on. I also know there's a massive hedge losses for some of the E&P companies. I've heard unconfirmed levels between 12 and $14 billion. That bad taste in your mouth is the morning after an Arturo Fuente cigar and a few black and tans. Dallas, I'm looking at you. With lower drilling, we're finally starting to see the ducks starting to come down. Hedge funds are a thing again, and they're trading in the physical space. Transfer of assets to these kinds of players will likely accelerate as their anonymity makes it easier to avoid headline risk. But what are the implications of the M&A wave happening now and likely to continue through President Biden's administration? These mergers are happening broadly for three reasons. Some are being bought as lame ducks, 
non-core assets sold off quickly after consummation of deal. Anything not already in production will be put in production after the engineering checks, and net effect, likely a small increase in production. The bigger jump is going to be in a year or so after the deal, if the prices stay up, as the new companies put these new assets into play. Well, actually, old assets, new owners. The next two are actually more interesting to me. Some mergers are happening as a means into getting greener. Probably not as much impact on oil production, but possibly more stable earnings. Cabot buying Simerex, energy transfer buying Enable Midstream come to mind. The other path is intriguing as well. The acquirer looks to be building a bigger engine. I'm thinking of the Pioneer Natural Resources acquisitions or even the CN Casey Southern merger. Obviously creating scale, but also consolidating the market. Yeah, you know, again, uh, uh, Corey, Jim, you know, really always a really important place in my heart when we talk about uh, finance and, and the energy industry. But I mean, when it comes down to it, what we're talking about this year, what we're seeing a lot of, you know, since the Biden administration is really all about the CSG. So, you know, it's kind of brings us here to subject this last question. But what do you think will be the legacy of this green movement, ESG standards or carbon reduction goals? Uh, both. Now. There have been green movements for some time. They've led to cleanups and changes like the lowering of sulfur and transportation fuels or removal of MTBE from gasoline, et cetera. What we have now is a generation is larger than the baby boomers that, though for lack of better words, was delayed from traditional development, buying homes, starting families, et cetera, and now are very much doing so. And as a collective group, though restricted by variables like student debt, have investment money and put more emphasis on experiences and causes than material possessions. Now, it's a push by this group that has led to private enterprises' adoption of ESG standards. That push has been exasperated by you know, institutional investors. Now, I say that, but some energy companies, for example, have underperformed the broader indices for some time. So it's a bit easier for the big investors to put pressure on those companies because some have become somewhat of an albatross on portfolios. I see carbon reduction goals and regulations as following this collective push. However, the recent aggressiveness in this direction is not sustainable. So I think we continue to see baselines for reduction raised. This, especially as we emerge from COVID and continue seeing inflation or energy shortages in places like California. From the ESG side of things, I think it largely depends on asset performance. If investors start evaluating a company based on ESG, but then lose money relative to benchmarks or companies they would not have selected based on ESG considerations, then perhaps ESG standards kind of fall from prominence. Now, there was some recognition of this with the U.S. Department of Labor and requiring fiduciaries of retirement plans to select based on financial performance and not ESG. Um, The DOL will not force these rules, but nonetheless, the situation highlights the concern over uh, multi-factor investing. Yes, so given those two choices, I'd say ESG standards will live longer and have a bigger impact. However, I think the legacy of the green movement will resemble something more like President Kennedy's 1962 moonshot speech. Why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal 
will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. That speech, and specifically that minute of the speech, ignited a revolution. First in science and in art and in civil liberties and philosophy and who we are as Americans. I know this sounds a bit weird coming from a career oil man, but look at the innovation this movement has already sponsored in the oil industry. It won't be a partisan politician or a virtue signaling CEO that gets the world to net zero emissions. It will be because the energy industry got us there. And as ironic as that is, I think that will be the legacy of the green movement. All right. Thanks, Jim. And a special thanks to Carl Larry for being with us today. Carl is a thought leader in his own right. Also, thanks to our many listeners and supporters, and please keep those questions coming. Till next time, thanks again.